You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to the second series of Post Growth Australia podcasts, the podcast where better is still infinitely better than bigger. I've taken a little bit of a break for the past couple of months as I emerged from Melbourne's lockdown to travel up and down the southeast coast of Australia. It has been so welcome to be able to hit the road once again, to be able to stretch and unfurl, to move, to do bushwalks and kayak in unfamiliar places. I was really dreading the twin prospect of travelling during a hot summer and during school holidays. Both of these things put together strike me with an unadulted horror and dread. However, I'm forever grateful for the La Nina, hopefully I pronounce that okay, weather pattern that has brought mildness and rain to a scorched and ravaged eastern coast. I stayed with a friend in her off-grid house up the mountain from Biga in southern New South Wales. Her property was all but decimated in the 2020 bushfires and visiting her property in the aftermath provided a torrent of mixed emotions. It was really difficult to see the blackened and charred exoskeletons of trees that would have once made that landscape lush, majestic and beautiful. However, the recent rains have resulted in a panorama of ballistic undergrowth and flowers. The diversity, range of shapes, contrast of colours totally blew my mind away. Indeed, a geographical phoenix rising from the ashes. Not a lot inspires me with hope these days, but witnessing this at least gave me faith in the tenacity of the natural world. Life finds a way. It was also great for me to spend some time in an intentional community west, inland and uphill of the subtropical northern rivers. I remember my last sojourn to that part of the world around six years ago. I was looking for property or intentional communities in northern New South Wales. <laughs> wasn't everyone, but I was plagued by misadventure after misadventure during that trip and duly promised myself never to go back. So it was nice to return to that part of the world again um, and have a lovely time while I was at it. There are many things I can say about global current affairs from the post-growth angle as 2020 waned and 2021 wax. Perhaps the thing that unsettles me the most was reading an article that stated that the total weight of the artificial built world now exceeds the total animal biomass. This was difficult to sink in, suffice to say, if there was ever an indicator that we need to stop building new houses, machines, anything, this is definitely the one. Another thing that struck me whilst on the road is how dependent I am on human settlements and indeed the grid. Every day I wake up in an accommodation in a settlement, pack all my material items up in the car, go to the cafe for a coffee, pick me up and often a brunch, shop for petrol and food supplies, more often than not at a Woolies or Coles, and then drive to the next settlement to do it all over again. If the dream was to spend more time in nature, the reality is when you have over 200 kilometres to travel each day, you get around two hours in the afternoon along a shorter nature track if you have the energy for it. I hate the cleared land, the settlements, the gaudy buildings, the chain shops, petrol stations and supermarkets, especially when this is at the expense of the natural world. But without these, I wouldn't be able to even remotely work for my Airbnb Wi-Fi. I'd also probably starve. So, twists and roundabouts, eh? 
At least this is what I tell myself. But having spoken to my next guests, Meg Ullman and Patrick Jones, from the Artists as Family Neo-Peasant Project, this puts all my grid dependency to shame. Meg and Patrick and their son live in a quarter-acre block in the Victorian regional alternative-slash-tourist hotspot of Dalesford. But this ain't no ordinary quarter-acre block, no siree. The artist's family live a life of frugal abundance with no cars, gas heating, flushing toilets or millions of dollars in the bank. What they do have is an abundant food forest, a closed-up loop system where all waste, including toilet waste, go back into the garden and deep connections with the rest of their local community to work in a system of giving and mutual exchange in an attempt to declare a degree of independence from the ever-growing industrialised world of smog and competition that we all just love to call progress. I always invite my guests to discuss a day-to-day -day life in a post-growth world to help us visualise what this world might actually be like to live in. But the artists' family are already doing this in such a fundamental, practical and visceral way. So the aim of the interview was to take me through a verbal walking tour of their house and how this whole neo-peasantry thing works. However, as Meg and Patrick are very deep, intelligent and wise people, and because I like to ask a lot of nosy and tangential questions, we quickly went down the rabbit hole of history lessons, philosophical musings, and the state of humanity in a toxic patriarchal world. So if you're tuning in expecting some light-hearted home renovations tour, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. It's funny, I recorded the interview before I left Melbourne, and on playback I'm really starting to feel envious of their low-carbon bicycle trip up and down Cape York and Peninsula, where they foraged through their own food, free camp, and stayed with a lot of amazing people. In comparison, I feel very capitalist with my own travelling habits. After the interview, I will play a song that the artist's family perform, play and recorded themselves called Water. The song is a mission statement as all the ways in which they preserve and close loop their water supply, edutainment and gorgeousness in equal measure. Perfect combo. Enjoy. Welcome back to PGAP. So I am absolutely honoured to be sitting here with Meg Ullman and Patrick Jones, artists' family, um, who are living this post-growth dream day by day. So um, how are you both? Hi, Michael. Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, nice to be here. Fantastic. So perhaps a great way to start is uh, to take me on a tour through your home in Dalesford in uh, regional Victoria and what might be the key differences between that and uh, conventional styles of modern living. I guess one of the things that you might notice first when you approach our house and walk into up onto the property is that there is no car access. So what was then a circular drive has now been converted into an orchard and what was the carport has now been converted into our bike port and our workshop where we uh, repair and make. So when you walk into the property, uh, you'll notice that most of it is under food production 
So we have perennial food forest systems and down the other end of the property we have our annual raised beds which are uh, on contours or they're on swales which is a, um, a permaculture passive water harvesting technique. Uh, we have chickens and ducks and a couple of beehives and we've got a series of tiny houses where we host volunteers uh, that come and stay with us and help us on our property when they're able to. And we also have a um, small uh, cottage that Patrick built out of reclaimed and upcycled materials uh, that we have on the holiday uh, rental market also when we can have people come and stay here. Also, there's usually one or all of us who are home on the property at, at all times. So there are a, uh, two adults, Patrick and I, and our eight-year-old Woody and our Jack Russell Zero. Uh, if you, when you walk into the house, you'll notice that we have a wood stove that we use for all of our cooking in the house. We've turned off the gas to the property, so we did have gas for our cooking and our heating and our hot water. And we spent time at an anti-coal seam gas blockade. And when we returned, we realised that it just didn't make sense for us just to switch a, um, push a button or flick a switch and then have gas come to the property. So we have this wood-fired heater, this oven. So we use it for, for our oven, for our toaster, for our kettle, for our stovetop, for our dehydrator. It heats our house, dries, dries our, clothes. our clothes, we raise bread, we make yogurt. And so all of the wood that powers it, uh, we retrieve from the nearby commons or from um, the local tip when we're allowed to take from there. Um, and that's all done uh, bike trailer by bike trailer or wheelbarrow. Um, and in the summer months, we've also got an outdoor kitchen uh, which we've just renovated. Uh, we also don't have a television. Uh, we don't have a clothes dryer, so we've always got clothes horses. On the north side of the house, we've got a little glass house where we raise our seeds and seedlings and we dry food and grow plants um, that need the warmth. Uh, so when we water the seeds and seedlings, that liquid catches and we have a worm farm underneath. Uh, we also... Uh, don't have a conventional flushing toilet on the property. We've got um, a series of uh, composting toilets. So we have a large fermenting table because we do ferment a lot of our produce that we uh, grow in the garden or um, buy from our local food co-op or farmer's markets. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Now, um, pre-COVID, you'd have volunteers or, uh, a lot of the time where you'd have to explain this over and over again. So after COVID, there's less of that. So does it feel like a fond memory, like explaining it all over again to someone new? Or Well, I think because the last six months we've done, because normally the teaching is hands-on, either in the town, the various community groups we're involved in. So um, Meg and I run a whole lot of different or assist um, the running of a whole lot of different groups um, from natural bee uh, keeping groups to fermenting community gardens. You know, that's very much, uh, you know, that's another part of the story that we can speak to later. But the non-volunteers um, has created quite a quietness in the house and a bit of a return to, um, I guess, a more conventional house because it's, it's been pretty communitarian for the last 12 years before COVID 
always having people stay and learn. Our filmmaking has gone up dramatically. So we've been pretty much releasing a new film and that might be on a particular skill like how to make mead or it might be um, uh, interviewing uh, two Indigenous uh, elders, uh, a whole range of skills but also discourses and conversations. Um, so, yeah, so we've really upped the ant ante with our, I guess, teaching in inverted commas or sharing with filmmaking yeah on uh, having a look at your youtube channel and your blog site and listening to a recent online talk uh with you patrick and anitra nelson who i interviewed a few episodes ago i've uh, managed to come across some new terms to add to my glossary <laughs> these include artists as family community sufficiency and neo-peasantry um would you like to unpack these a little and um, how these manifest in your day-to-day lives. So we as a family collective call ourselves Artist as Family and that came about uh, because Patrick was invited to be an artist in residence at a show um, at an exhibition space in Newcastle in New South Wales. He didn't want to be the, the solo male artist who was, you know, part of a family over here and then he was going to create the the artwork over here, he really wanted to better integrate the, those two parts of of his life. And so Artist's Family was born as a way to really look at, scrutinise and compost the artist as an instrument of yeah. capital forms, yeah. I would say. I just think that there'd been a long period of time of looking at the kind of role that art plays in a growth economy. and pretty much being the first artist through art school to have a professional development um, part of the course, being the first art students, um, I think it was 19, 1989, to be charged with HEX um, as all university students. So very, very defiantly um, stood my ground in orientation week as the vice chancellor of the university basically said, you know, that you, you will um, be paying now um, for your uh, for the privilege of your education and defiantly saying, I will never earn the threshold to pay a single cent back. And um, and I've stuck to that. And I, I, turned, I turned 50 throughout um, the pandemic. And, um, and I, I, yeah, I feel very proud. That's a, just one little life achievement um, that I'm very proud of really looking, examining at what I perceive as the problem of Western art practice and its um, embeddedness or coupling with um, market-driven growthism and looking, always being interested from a very early age uh, um, as an artist, I guess to reperform art that is um, much more holistic in its um place in community life and in home life rather than the virtuosic and the rarefied and the avant-garde traditions that I initially was uh, sort of enculturated into in art school, um, just very quickly being repelled by those forms of relationships, um, mainly because I, I perceive them to be not really based on relating but actually on things like status and um, power and, and careerism. Um, as opposed to a practice, uh, a practice that enriches and brings gifts of that practice back into home and community life. And so now our life is our art and is our expression of our 
artistic um, theories, I guess. So our, the wood stack becomes an artwork and our fermenting table becomes an artwork and our garden becomes an artwork and our the way that we relate to each other and the, the way that we have are in relationship with the, the forest. Yeah, so performance art as a lived experience, um, a lived degrowth. And, and what I guess we mean by neo-peasantry is reclaiming ancestral story and reclaiming ancestral lifeways. So it's not to say we're going to dress in period costume and walk around as Middle Ages peasants, but we are particularly aware of what happened to our old people in the lead up to what systematically has happened to our old people pretty much. I always take it back to Hesiod, which is 2,700 years back. So Hesiod was the poet, farmer, and often mentioned as the father of modern economy. Um, he was also very well known as a misogynist, and he rewrote the Greek theology of the day. In that rewriting, diminished the role of women. He uh, <laughs> holds a lot of responsibility, you know, or is at least one very important point of the, the formations of toxic patriarchy in the West. So his way of farming and thinking was created in the absence of the feminine. And so two centuries later, we have Plato and thus Socrates being re recorded as saying, I have nothing to learn from trees and fields. I only have things to learn from men. By men, he meant men in cities. And so here is the sort of anthropocentricizing of the West. And while, you know, of course, there is a lot to draw on with Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, there is that the ultimate problem is the anthropocentricizing of culture um, and the diminishment of, you know, that I think Hesiod is a really um, important point to study in this, um, in this, in, in what I call toxic patriarchy, because patriarchy itself isn't toxic. It's only toxic in the absence of of many others, that it, it's when it stands alone, a little like a forest that's just completely covered in blackberry. It's not the, the, the blackberry itself, it's the dominance of the species that is so problematic. Getting back to the kinds of culture that our peasant ancestors experienced, particularly before the witch hunts in the Middle Ages, because that was when um, the maternal wisdom of Western people in Europe was completely and utterly smashed apart. And so while there was, you know, the cities and the, and the men doing the stately thing in the aristocracy, the common people of the land were pretty much left to, you know, they were infiltrated by Christianity and they were infiltrated by taxes. And, you know, there were a whole lot of crap things that happened. But it wasn't until the systemic attack on the feminine um, in the Middle Ages that then led into the Enlightenment and, and the ramping up of toxic patriarchy into the kind of culture that can just so utterly devastate land and wild nature um, in the industrial form that it has over the last two or 300 years. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to understand this, but for me, this has been my way of making sense of arriving at neo-peasantry because these are the ancestral ways of being on Aboriginal country 
on Jajarong spoken for country, um, where Jara people held very similar economies to my old people in Europe before the great trammeling of our midwives, our herbalists, our dispute resolvers and witches. So I guess for us, neo-peasantry is this reclaiming of what I would call a gender distributed, gender spectrumed culture because men suffer under toxic patriarchy. This is something that is not often spoken about, but of course, everyone suffers under toxic patriarchy. And community sufficiency, the third term, the term self-sufficiency is actually quite right-wing and is very uh, narrow in its intention and its focus and actually quite boring, really. And for us, it's all about being in relationship. And we are on a quarter-acre permaculture plot. We have close to 100 or so different families and households who we are in a gift exchange relationship with. So that can be something that's quite regular, that we, um, you know, I look after my child, your, your child, you look after my child once a week, or it's much more nuanced. And whenever I have excess of duck eggs, then I give them around, you know, walk around my neighborhood and giving them out to um, people I know. And the flow of gifts is returned when people have excess honey from their bees or you know, pickled gherkins from a, a great harvest or whatever it is. Um, so the term community sufficiency is really about how we rely on each other, how we interact with each other. Mainly it's about people in our neighbourhood and people in our community who we are uh, in relationship with. Wow. Um, we did say on this uh, on this series, we go down the rabbit hole with the questions. <laughs> Certainly, have I got a, a history lesson there too? And, and it's just made me think, like um, <laughs> comparing um, patriarchy to, to blackberry trees. You know, it um, isn't necessarily the thing itself that's a problem, but mm -hmm. in context of um, uh, being out of balance with everything else. Yeah, it seems to be a um, uh, a question of balance here, which mm -hmm. the growth-based society is out of. Um, I know, you know, when, when I talk about post-growth societies, um, I almost feel that people want a utopian version of that explained to them before they buy into it. Mm -hmm. um, and my response is, um, you know, living on the 3D plane is just not like that. Nothing is ever totally bliss. It's yeah. just, um, you know, a large part of life sucks, <laughs> but just the modality you do, you know, the bits that suck suck in a different way and the things that are great are great in a different way. Now, this is not academic speak. I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, so I'm curious whether your modality of living, whether you see that as bringing more joy than more conventional ways of living or that it's brought up unique challenges or or that the good and bad is different um open-ended question but mm. off yeah. you go <laughs> yeah um i i think um martin prechtel is a great indigenous writer um and he uh in one of his books long life honey in the heart talks about how Marxists and fascists and um, uh, I think the third people to invade his village in Guatemala 
Tutsu Hill Village um, were like a radical Catholicism. So, and these all these three forces wanted the villages, and the villages' um, cosmology was one of earth honoring. Um, the feminine earth was sacred. Um, uh, very typical of traditional cultures. Martin observes that the villages weren't trying to make a non-suffering world, and that all three of the others coming in were claiming they could make a non-suffering world. And I think that growing older is really understanding the importance of grief and going into grief and facing grief, because if we don't, we bring grief onto others. We um, facilitate um, two circles, uh, different circle gatherings in the forest. So we light a fire uh, once a month. The one I facilitate is a, a men's um, business circle and uh, men from all over the, these are not just permaculturalists or hipsters <laughs> that are living a kind of uh, <laughs> community sufficient lifestyle. These are, these are a really great cross section of the community um, turnout. Um, a lot of grief is expressed, um, particularly from younger men who um, realize just how the, their algorithm is dictating their life and, um, you know, f- forming them and polarizing them. And um, But these circles are where the fire itself is the, the, the witness and, and a, a kind of deep listening uh, modality so that no one interrupts anybody. It's just um, speaking, a, a safe place to speak um, from a very, uh, an unmasked place. We like to say that this is a chance to take off some masks. Since giving up work as a builder and and the kind of the grueling nature of that, I mean, I, I loved building. I, I, I see a lot of young people having a love in, say, gardening and then trying to turn that into a market garden business or ultimately what really burnt me out was just the the money grind and needing to earn more and more money to in order to pay for the more and more tools and the tools were wearing out and I would have to get my youth serviced each year and what I really realized is that if I just actually stopped all that and went car free and walked everywhere and grew my own food I had this hunch and luckily a partner who was interested to explore that with me but I, I guess 12 14 years ago when I was still building I was very unhappy. To get back to the grief stuff, it's not like we live with an absence of unhappiness. It's just that back then it was more depression and anxiety because there wasn't time to process. It was depression because I wasn't living according to my values, ecologically or socially, feeling very trapped in work. Another thing Prechtel talks about, depression is really grief that doesn't have a home. So it has no place for to be released. And so he talks about indigenous cultures not having depression or anxiety. They go straight to grief because the culture is so sophisticated in being able to uh, hear grief and witness grief. Those cultures that are sophisticated in grief, there is no rationality with grief. It, it, it is a force of its own and it's embarrassing in, in, in polite society to, to reveal grief. It's, it, we don't have any safety processes or rituals or even cultural understandings to actually do grief well. So therefore, we're an anxious and depressed society. When we start to 
grow around food and every meal we we make an honoring about where that food comes from and the story and the people and the more than humans that have made that food possible and that we see ourselves as participatory biomes in a cyclical nutrient um, exchange gift flow um, then depression and anxiety lessen dramatically but the only way that I could find to do that was I had to give up working for the man. I had to give up working for clients who were forever, you know, I'm feeling forever indebted to or beholden to or, you know, accountable to and um, work out a way of living so super frugally and uh, on the smell of an oily rag that, um, which I've always been pretty good, both of us being artists and learning to live with with very little reliance on money um, has been the ability to open up to a practice of grief and to be able to start to work with others. And this is what the circles in the forest are, to actually become a little less immature in processing grief, understanding the relevance of grief and just how grief is so dovetailed to praise and joy that you can't have joy and praise without grief because we don't know what we've we're missing we don't know what we're what our loss is if we're not grieving and then when we know what our loss is through our grief then we understand what we're praising we're praising that thing that we've lost i i just wanted to touch on um when, when I saw you present with Anitra um, on a YouTube live discussion a couple of weeks ago, um, and you're explaining some aspects um, of your life, for example, no, no cars in a rural or a less urban area, um, and that you haven't travelled overseas for quite a while, and an extensive frugality, and even from someone who I describe as minimalist, there was a part of me that almost had a little bit of a Oh, wow, almost, I, I don't know, a little panicky moment there. It's just um, I, I could see definitely intellectually um, how that really reduces the uh, capital footprint. But um, to me it's just my my personal love for travelling and not being rooted into one spot. I, I suppose I had like a emotional um Oh my god moment to that. So I was just wondering how these things um, – uh, and, and I imagine other people would be having a, a similar re- response. Um, so, h- how do we like turn the sacrifice, the sense of sacrifice and deprivation, into opportunity and excitement, um, which which I think is a thread that would perhaps bring more people into this kind in, in your way of, of of living and i don't mean any of that to sound patronizing but i'm just being kind of honest about uh some of the things i actually said oh to do this i'd have to let this go and felt a bit sad so yeah <laughs> well, it's a really good question um and before patrick and i got together uh i spent a lot of time uh working hard, <laughs> saving money to buy a, a ticket somewhere, go off overseas for a couple of weeks or a few months and then come back and do it all again. So I have a great love of travelling, of putting myself in situations that uh, I wouldn't normally put myself into and to, um, experience other cultures and other ways of being. Yeah, when we 
got rid of both of our cars about a decade ago. That was a really big fear that I had too. It's like, how will I get around? And when we decided that we wouldn't fly anymore, but how will I get to express myself and how will I get to travel and to see the world and how will I know get to know these other cultures in a very first-hand experiential way? And we decided that we would go on a bike trip. So we rode our bikes from uh, central Victoria here up to uh, Cape York. Um, so this bike trip, there were five of us on, five mammals on two bikes, so uh, four <laughs> humans, Jack Russell, and we took it slowly. We foraged for a lot of our food. We free camped most of the way. We hunted, we fished, we gleaned, we met people, we were invited to stay with people, we um, cooked them dinner with food that we had gleaned or dumpster dived or foraged or some roadkill or um, we did permaculture designs for their garden, we babysat for them, we did their dishes, we mowed their lawns, we did whatever we could to, um, as a form of exchange for their hospitality. Yeah, it was so nourishing and so satisfying because we were doing it at ecological speed. We were going slowly enough that we were in relationship to all the different biomes that we were riding through. So we got to know we didn't just arrive somewhere like you do in a car or even more so in an aeroplane. It just changed my whole perspective of what I want from travel and that really it's to put myself in a new place so I can get some fresh perspective and to meet meet people who I ordinarily wouldn't. So when I'm here in my bubble in Dalesford, <laughs> yes, I'm interacting with a whole range of people, but to get myself out of my comfort zone was a great learning, a great learning for me and incredibly fulfilling because as Patrick said before, when you align your actions with your belief system, so to live in line with your values is incredibly fulfilling. And yes, there are challenges in everyday life for us as there are with every, you know, everybody. But at the end of the day, to know that you're living in line with your values, there is something so incredibly satisfying about that. And that trip for me and ever since we've we gave up our car and we've given up air travel there has been that sense of I want to say peace but it's not really peace but I think maybe it is peace but we don't have to destroy places that we can't see just so we can have a holiday or just so we can go away together as a family you know the oil wars that are happening and of course when you're body is your mobility so when you're walking and bike riding then of course you have to be much more um, focused on the way that you're feeding your body because it is your the way that you're getting around and if you eat food that is uh, nutritionally empty then um, you won't have the energy that you need so to really focus on um, health-giving, nutrient-dense food. And, of course, when you are low-income like we are, we're not just going to go to the shops and buy 
you know, organic food. So growing our own food has been and learning, um, you know, hundreds of different species that we can forage um, in, you know, in this neck of the woods and further afield has been a great way for us to, um, you know, get the the energy that we need so then we can walk and work hard and ride our bicycles to wherever we need to go. Mm. I think also a greater sense of well-being too because the more um, uh, active we become, we're, we're not dependent on the industrial medical system at all and it's while we have dear friends and family members who are and we're thankful that um, industrial medicine um, is there for them in their needs when you don't need it and when the way in which you live necessitates its redundancy then um, it does ask questions about the duplicity of industrial food and medicine and that industrial food is making us sicker. We know that. There's, there's, there's no theory. Therefore, the, the need for industrial medicine to ramp up as major inputs into our lives puts us on. And, and of course, industrial transit and transport kind of doesn't create the, the vitality and the fitness that um, using our legs does. So when we got to road up into central Queensland, we started to see these big um, centres on the outskirts of towns, of big mining towns, and they were a big supermarket, a big farmer, and big energy. And the three were like the trifecta of growthism. And the more we're dependent on that trifecta, the, the more unhealthy ourselves and the land will become. It may seem like deprivation in an industrial context, but when you've lived, as we have probably at least 10 years, if not more, outside of that as a main system, of course, we still ride on bitumen paths that have been put down by huge um, industrial machinery. And of course... Um, and bicycles that have been and, built in. Exactly, and bicycles that have come and that use rubber. And, you know, it's, there's, it's not a purist approach mm. at all. But certainly lessening um, our reliance on the monetary economy by 70 to 80%. In the first lockdown, it was about 85% non-reliant on the monetary economy. But it's basically been sitting around 70, 75% non-reliant. And, you know, the, the link into the monetary economy is the link into industrial culture. And, of course, it's which is the same link into um, what I would call toxic patriarchy that all our institutions, our financial, economic, schooling, medical, prison institutions, whatever institutions are all based on patriarchal, on what I would call to toxic patriarchal um, uh, foundations. So, so that to reculture ourselves um, out of that is a transition. If we don't know roughly what we're moving away from, Utopia hasn't really been a kind of focus for us because in order to move away from this part of industrialism, like food or energy or medicine, what do we have to put in place? And in a way, it's basically discovering that we're moving away from a hyper-reliance on technology and um, a much greater um, reliance on relationships and knowledge-based um, 
and you know ecological knowledges and plant knowledges and it actually it doesn't feel from within this reculturing um and even though you know we can only go so far in a household or in a neighborhood or in a community it's not a deprivation of the dominant culture is it's it's a replacing of those things that are considered essential as someone who's lived in cities for most of my life i've tried to live in places with established gardens so at least the herbs and greens don't need to be bought from outside and beyond and indeed uh, at the moment i'm living in a I suppose a retro suburbia <laughs> uh, may practice at the moment. Um, addition to that, I've researched the top personal choices in regards to minimising my footprint. Um, the top three that I came up with were minimalism, um, veganism, and indeed having smaller families. Uh, for that reason, I'm vegan and child-free. I do wonder if there may be different priorities for living in an urban environment, which is an interdependent open-loop open system or <laughs> a completely dependent open-loop open system, um, depending, um, to more closed-loop systems living rurally uh, where being vegan and child-free may be impractical when relying on seasonal produce and informal support networks. Does context matter and therefore may the informed choices being made by um, rural and um, urban retro suburbia urban households look different. Yeah, great question. Another great question. Yeah, I think yes, context is everything. And one of the things that I really like about permaculture is that it is based on a set of twelve principles, and they're not rules, they're not laws, they're just guidelines. And it's all about where you live and how you can apply the principles to your situation. And also the retro suburban model is not everybody flee to the countryside and live their permaculture dream of having their several acres and their, you know, solar passive house. It's about retrofitting where you live so you can live in line with the resources that you have around you and also to live in line with in with your values where wherever you are so it's to bloom where you're planted i think that if i was living in a city i would probably follow along very similar lines of thought as what you've arrived at having spent most of my life in regional and sometimes remote parts of australia and really being a rare example of a white fella in this country that is that has not had um, most of my family has been rural. Most of all my ancestors are, are land have been land bonded in some way. That is not to say um, that's the same sort of land bondedness in Europe as it is here. I guess the the point I want to make about being attuned to land is when you understand the power and agency of succession and how weeds and pioneer species. Um, whether they be Indigenous or non-Indigenous, have this incredible part to play in healing um, rupture. Um, and then you see that the same with our species. We have this, you know, when we have been our best, which is most of human history, has lived in some sort of land-bonded, ritual-based relationship to Earth. And therefore, having children is the 
honoring the ancestors of the past to make ancestors for the future. And so living that change that if we as activists, um, neo-peasant activists in our case, or permaculture activists, or degrowth activists, post-growth activists, whatever um, we call ourselves, is a kind of reclaiming, I think, of the sorts of sensibilities and the sorts of cultural, this is not about cultural appropriation, this is making new culture, but it's 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 drawing on on our ancestors who their economic form had to be in relationship. It, it, it could not be apart from. So, and while I totally understand um, birth striking as a as a completely legitimate response to growthism, and you know, growing up listening to people like Peter Costello, the former treasurer of Australia, saying "Have have one for mum, have one for dad, and have one for the country," um, and. And obviously, population is a massive problem in in what is happening to wild and more than human nature. That yeah, that it is such a complex subject and a politically uh, troubling um, subject. And I don't really want to stop there for this for, on the line of thought that I'm on because what I really want to talk to is understanding children in the same way that we understand ecological succession. Children are societal succession. And if we continue to, in, from my perspective, if we continue to educate our children in industrial schooling, we will continue to make industrial culture. And this is not about having children either. Like raising children doesn't mean that we're having children or having to have children. We might be uncle or auntie roles. There might be surrogate parenting roles. There's, there's so many ways of being involved in younger generations, just as there is in eldership and older generations. And so I think what growthism and capitalism, particularly urban-centric growthism, does is alienate generations. What I've noticed in my short times of living in cities is just how generationally specific um, a lot of interaction is, whereas there is still this sort of remnant in rural parts of the world, um, and particularly um, Australia, I guess I'm speaking to mostly, is the importance of very little children uh, to very, very old people and everybody in between and the kind of the stages of life, the rites of passage. And to be, I mean, to speak from a parent perspective, again, you don't, I'm really stressed, it's not about becoming a parent, but being in some service to children um, in order to grow the social succession into its next form. Because if we're just constantly cut off into, I guess, what Tyson Yunker-Porter calls this narcissism in the, in the dominant society, where it's really just where we think of just our own generation, or we might think of our parents' generation and our own. We're not in the thinking of um, many ecological cultures of place, which have been mostly human experience thinking several generations forward. So what we do now really matters. And I think that I didn't personally, I don't think you have to become a parent to have this realization, but for me personally, I had to become a parent to see myself as connected, connected to the past and connected to the future. For me, just a note about the veganism. If I was living in a city, I was a vegetarian for 20 years, But if I was living in a city today, I would probably also be vegan. And for me, 
starting to grow my own food and starting to compost our own human manure and catch our own rainwater and then drink that rainwater and become that rain, I really saw myself much more as a part of the world. And veganism for me is a complete anomaly. But, of course, it does make sense in a city which is also an anomaly. Woody and I, we've got some neighbours with milking goats and we milk their goats once a week and get their milk. And we have our own goats which we um, we kill occasionally for meat. But to be so intimately connected with with that animal protein, of course we've got our own chickens and ducks and we've got geese as well with, it, with our goats, but to be so intimately connected with those other beings and Patrick when you were talking before about the ground thrush and my first thing like the news today is that one of the ducks is now starting to feather a nest which means she's getting ready to sit but just to have these relationships is so rewarding when we take a goat's life it's not an act of hatred it is an act of kinship and an act of honoring that that creature and to when we we in, see ourselves in the food web as well. Not. That's right. We don't eat a lot of meat. We have meat once a week. With all of that animal protein that we ingest, we it is an oath that we take to use that life energy to to make more life possible and to to honor honor the world using that energy. Yeah. I think the other aspect too, to because I, I certainly considered veganism before, uh, I guess twelve years ago, and we started on this permaculture um, journey uh, because, yeah, both of us were really challenging. Meg was when we first met was still a vegetarian, and we were really still getting our um, food from conventional places. So it did, um, it definitely it was part of the conversation. Was part of the conversation, mm. but then it it just. The more I looked into it, um, the more I examined that or, or became aware that it's actually food that we can't see is the problem. It's actually not whether it's a fungi or a fauna or flora. It's actually if we don't have relationships with these, then something systemic is happening, That um, whether it be clearing land for soy or almond production i mean the other thing too of course is the sentience is there a sentient difference between a carrot and a goat i used to be quite sure about that but i'm i'm actually not so sure anymore the more i read in not mechanistic um science but in i guess process science the sort of science um that merlin sheldrake and his dad are, are bringing um into the world the more i consider that actually um and also listening to Indigenous scholars like Tyson Yankaporta, who are basically saying, I am no greater than that rock, that person, that creek, that flower, but I'm no lesser than that rock, that person, that flower. And I think that that wisdom itself um, puts into context that there is, I think, a difference with um, feedlot agriculture and we we never buy or yeah there's there's no commercial meat that comes into this house um because well we call that meat sad meat because it has to 
regardless of how well the farming practice is, um, they all all animals have to end up in a, a slaughterhouse. And so, you know, we draw a, a very clear line there um, that if we are going to take an animal's life, we, that has to be in a ritual context and it has to be in an honouring context and we have to be the ones that actually do that. So I guess that's where we've arrived and I don't think it's uh, better than any other person's food ethics, but it's certainly the one that fits um, our uh, values and um, means and uh, abilities. And, you know, I think the closer we are to these relationships, if death is also part of those relationships, then they're not so foreign, they're not so alien. But as, as we've become more urbanized and less close to um, these sorts of uh, to, to processes of direct food procurement, of direct engagement, then, then I can see that it would be uh, a, a very big step to then take an animal's life, a huge step. Ah, oh, great, great discussion because, you know, although um, I suppose officially I'm quite fixed on my positions, you know, any ideology is full of nuance and I think it's great that we can, that our thoughts on things just weave in together and explore the crevices and the nuances and I wish people would do that more. In my experience, in home and community gardens, it is difficult to get starchy carbohydrates and uh, calorie-dense food. Perhaps it's just because I'm not as great for gardener as I think I am, but I often wonder for this reason whether carrying capacity, e.g. the number of feet in a given land area, has import as does the per capita behaviour of the individual feet. Uh, and, you know, I wonder if there's a tension between preserving the food bowls and the loss of independence that comes from losing a garden when cities become more dense. Is decentralisation the answer if, you know, population, for example, doesn't come into the equation? And if so, um, can rural Australia cope with many more of us, uh, <laughs> assuming they all live like you do? Um, well, yeah, I mean, just to go to the last part of that question. I, I think that we are living um, at a rate of carbon and food and energy. Um, I guess Anitra Nelson in her book, um, Exploring Degrowth, um, and other degrowth activists use the, the word frugal abundance, which is very different to competitive scarcity of, of capitalism and growthism. So yeah, frugal abundance is something will would take a lot more of us, um, and particularly if we were applying permaculture nuts and bolts and principles, um, basic skills, um, or any kind of regenerative um, cultural. Um, it doesn't have to be permacultural. There's, there are many other forms uh, and ways of being to draw on. Um, the, the, the biggest problem is industrial cities. And um, so whether cities are a problem itself or whether it's actually the industrialization of cities. Derek Jensen wrote in his great big double-volumed Endgame a number of years ago that his definition of unsustainability is any centre that is large enough to have to rely on the importation of resources. And I, I think that's a very good analogy. I think scale is everything. 
certainly with diseases, and this is just one of many diseases that have uh, COVID um, that has really heavily attacked cities. And so when you think of the plagues in Europe and the the pestilence through that is developed through first because of agriculture allowing centers to develop to such a degree uh, so that when there's too much human activity and there is not enough biology to, to process the nutrients and the waste materials, then we become uh, too big in scale. And I think that we have no uh, capacity, no mental capacity to examine that. It's not a question of cities are, are bad, the countryside is good. It is more a, a question of scale. Like, what, where are our resources coming from? I would like to see discussions. It doesn't matter the size of the center, but where are our resources coming from? And what are our waste products looking like on the way out? Because at the moment, big industrial cities like Melbourne, who are famous for saying, you know, or uh, famously like to tell the world um, that they're the second most livable city in the world, um, none of that, that narrative and that myth-making, and, you know, deeply, richly cultural, you know, a wonderful place for young musicians and music to take place um, in Australia. Uh, the arts uh, was drawn to move down into regional Victoria years ago from Sydney as an artist because I wanted to be closer to the art scene in Melbourne. But all of these things, what what is almost a conceit um, is that question of, well, where are our resources coming from? It's not necessarily what are our resources, it's where are they coming from and what are the stories that sit in behind them? And if we don't know those stories, then, then, uh, then I would say the scale is too big because if we don't um, investigate um, what those stories are, then we're basically just eating and living off a system that is that I think it's fair enough to say you you can you can state that it is unsustainable. If you don't know the story, then it is most likely unsustainable. So yeah, story basically brings us into contact and relationship with our resources. And so, therefore, you know, why dumpster diving is so big is that at least there's the story. At least there's this, that story of the night, the thrill of reclaiming this waste product of what is it, something like a third of uh, food in Australia goes wasted each year, uh, either into skip bins or from the refrigerator into, into the trash bins. But it doesn't actually go to the... Um, to the symptom, it, it doesn't go to the problem itself. It's just all our clothes comes from the local op shop. It's still sweatshop, but we're not, and we're not certainly paying for that system to keep perpetuating. But ultimately, we're relying on throwing out clothes to dress ourselves and keep ourselves warm. But these are all great transition steps towards an, another story, another way of being, and and sort of decoupling ourselves from being. 100% reliant on a culture of new, of a culture of innovation, a culture of uh, competition, a culture of outsourcing all of our uh, resources to strangers, people that we can't see, uh, farms that we can't see. And I, I think that's the thing with, um, like in Australia, all pulses, nuts, grains, and fruits. So these are all 
omnivore, vegan and vegetarian friendly um, food sources. They all rely on the wholesale extermination of wild birds mostly, but wild animals in order to make those, even on the smallest organic farm, um, cockatoos have to be shot in order to have organic walnuts. The poisoning, gassing, shooting of wild nature occurs once your farm gets to a certain point. So, I mean, again, it just gets back to, to me, it's like subsistence economies are what we need to reperform because in that we all become generalists again. We all have relationships again. We're not having to do the, necessarily the same tasks. One of us might be a teacher. One of us might be a, a medicine person um, and they get gifts given by the food that people are growing or, you know, it, it, it can, it doesn't mean that we all have to be growing food. But if, if we're not all making soil at the very le at, at the very least, I think we've yeah I, I you know I don't think that we'll ever be sustainable in the true sense of that word. I don't think it's possible to be sustainable. So I think is scale is everything, and economy is everything, and the way we do economy is is the culture we make. So we've been talking to Patrick and Meg, artists' family. I'm going to put all the links to all the YouTubes and blog sites in the description. Just before we go, I might just get a catchphrase from both of you. Um, Meg, in 30 seconds or less, here's a challenge. <laughs> uh, why is degrowth important to you? The monetary economy needs to be in degrowth but the home and community economy needs to be in growth mm. so i would say that's my catchphrase <laughs> mm. I, I don't do 30 seconds very well but i'll give it a go <laughs> um yeah so I, I think why degrowth is so important is that it's a strategy it's not austerity it's not um you know collapse it's not um punitiveness degrowth is a process and it's a very um, empowering process if, if a ha household in individual or a household or a neighborhood or a community takes on the approach of degrowth, then you're going to be, or we, those people are going to be so much more resilient in the face of things, just as we've seen with COVID that, um, you know, the, the economic aspect, the empty supermarket shelves, they had nothing to do with our, our story. And we've been, I guess, preparing not as preppers, but as neo-peasant permaculturalists uh, and degrowers um, for a long time, degrowing the reliance on the big story in order to grow a reliance on the more intimate stories of land and people in, that we're bonded to here in, in a present moment. Um, it has been an utter pleasure uh, speaking to both of you. Uh, in my head, I thought we're just going to have a tour about uh, degrowth in practice in the house and we've ended up having an amazing philosophical discussion. So um, I hats off to both of you for everything that you do and everything that you think and everything that you be. Oh, thank you, Michael. Likewise, Michael, and thank yeah. you for doing this work and yeah. sharing these stories. Don't shower, such a waste of water. We wash wild in the local lake, and we bike home to 
use our non-flush toilets. This saves thousands of litres a year. All our grey water goes into the garden. Not a drop is wasted so we can grow food. We've dug these swales that harvest winter rainfall. And when we can afford to, we'll buy another tank. Goddess, we must water all her seeds of joy, for without her, we are really cactus, though this metaphor is probably a bit bizarre. We make compost from our human waste streams, we grow food in human US soil. This saves water in no deep veggie gardens And all our fruit trees love our wee and poo We don't wash all our precious microbes From our skin with unnecessary soap We have stopped serving the matrix Buying useless products to mask what's really us. Do we really think a water-intensive lifestyle will prepare us for what lies ahead? Two showers a day, white gilt flush toilets, irrigation from dying rivers so we can get fed. We water our seedlings, it falls into the worm farm. A bucket's all we need to catch this precious flow. Then we'll carry it to any plant that needs it. We handle the soil so we really know. When it rains, our roofs catch all the water. Every little surface on every little roof Catch and store for later and use with grace and frugal Nothing in this world deserves our disrespect And when it rains in summer we'll divert the giving stormwater Steer it to the food forest on the nature strip which is deeply mulched to conserve even more moisture. Growing shady fruit trees helps with this too. Most of what we do is offensive and illegal in a climate of greed and intransigence. To comply with OHS and government red tape is to be compliant and foolish with modernity's death wish. You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast. Thank you so much to Meg Ullman and Patrick Jones of Artists' Family for joining me on the first episode of the second season and for serenading us with their composition come mission statement, Water, a neo-peasant anthem. Sagely advice for the rest of us. 
I was really taken by the immense wisdom and knowledge of these two incredible and adventurous human beings. Throughout the conversation, I found a couple of my ideologies being challenged and shaken in the best possible way imaginable. Basically, I hold four non-compromising rules for myself when it comes to mitigating my long-term impact on the planet. Firstly, I adopt a loose, minimalist lifestyle where I don't buy unnecessary stuff. Secondly, not to build any new dwellings or infrastructure for my own living arrangements, existing houses only for me. Thirdly, eat as low on the food chain as is practical. For all effects and purposes, this means that I've been vegan for the past 14 years. And lastly, not to reproduce so that the traumas and first world consumption patterns stop with me. On the last two counts, Patrick and Meg have come the closest to shifting my opinion I can't say I have exactly rushed out to uh, eat goat or um, sorry a little of little me's just yet, but I really appreciated their ability to navigate with different points of view and give their position without descending into dogma and conflict. For anyone currently in the middle of a protracted social media war, artists as family bring a refreshing alternative to discussion and conversation, as well as their absolutely everything else they do. Agree? Disagree? Fiercely undecided? Let us know what you think by filling out the contact form on the homepage or give a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or your favourite platform. Don't be shy now. I have a really strong guest list for this season and I'm particularly looking forward to my next guest. Not giving away any trade secrets yet, you have to tune in next time to find out all for yourself. Until then, until then.